Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 357 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, we're delighted to begin the third season of our Location and the Writer series. This time, Carl Whitney recalls the unlovely central motorway area of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and how he found himself at home there. Then, Zoe Howe takes us to Canvey Island in the Thames Estuary, low-lying outpost of a Cockney diaspora. First, here's Carl Whitney on Newcastle-upon-Tyne. I write in a small studio that I rent on the sixth storey of a 20th century office block that's slated for demolition in the next few years. It's on the eastern edge of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, city centre. A couple of blocks of the city, most of which I can see from my office window, will become a high-end shopping precinct, or at least that's the plan. For now, the buildings sit relatively empty. Some serve as offices for charities, others as artists' studios, but it often appears that there are more pigeons than people in this postcode. The birds hunker down on the roofs and ledges of adjoining buildings, or flit through the vast chambers of the decaying Art Deco car park that sits outside my window. It's a place threatened by destruction, or renewal, depending on your perspective. In 2013, I moved from my home city of Dublin to North East England. Although I had previously lived in other countries, including England, I knew that this move was a little more permanent, and it was to a place that I had never visited before. As a writer, I'm interested in instability and flux, but as a human being, I like to maintain at least an illusion of permanence, routine, familiarity. When you migrate to somewhere unknown, it's difficult to establish a clear sense of where you are, and you can't fully recall or reassemble who you were. You find yourself between cultures. It's a deeply destabilising experience. After my move, suddenly feeling like the ground had slipped from beneath my feet, I looked to the past to anchor me. I think it's probable that everyone has places that they remember fondly, that always seem to remain the same, at least when they're fixed in memory. I often recall my childhood home and the places frequently connected to happy memories. When I think back to it, it's always sunny, and the brown kitchen lino is always warm under my bare feet. But at the same time, I realise the complexity of this memory. The place, as it was, is gone. My family moved when I was 12. Someone else lives there now, and the house is much changed. I look at it on street view, just to check, every so often. And anyway, I now live a few hundred miles away, in a different country. Yet my thoughts return there every so often, as if I want to believe in something permanent and unchanging in a world of flux. I'm from a suburb on the edge of Dublin, a nowhere that became a somewhere. It developed from a rural village to a swathe of housing estates and shopping centres over a couple of decades. I witnessed some of this transformation and remember how the rural and urban intermingled uneasily but fascinatingly. I retain a fondness for the incomplete place, one that might be in rapid decline or undergoing development. So although I've filed away happy, stable memories, I'm also aware that, while I was experiencing those warm, glowing moments, I was simultaneously keeping an eye on, or at least soaking up, the contingent, the unstable, the sense of a place changing. 
Ultimately, as a writer, I look for places that are undergoing or on the edge of transformation, places that refuse to embody a fixed history, that swerve a vain sense of the eternal, and instead illustrate the undulating realities of contemporary existence, where past and present are intermingled uncomfortably. I often wonder why I'm drawn to the incomplete, the provisional. When I try to write about somewhere that's too perfect, I fail. When writing about a place, I need gaps that allow a way into a subject. I'm seeking a place that will surprise me, or that will trigger something in me that will allow me to surprise myself. As a non-fiction writer, you're perennially running into the wall of the factual, the already written, the well-established truths. It can become difficult to clear some space of your own in which to think through a subject. In many ways, that's the job, to find something new to say, to zone in on some aspect of what you're writing about that's completely your own. Ideally, you want your writing to catch fire, to transcend its origins and become something new, distinct. What's creative about creative non-fiction? Where does its imaginative element lie? It's something that I often consider, and the best answer I can come up with is that, when writing about a place, the elements I uncover, the layers I manage to explore in a variety of ways, can be brought together to tell a story that's both rigorously factual and deeply dependent on the subjective process of selection, perhaps even whim, of the author. You follow your nose. The centre of Newcastle sits a couple of hundred metres to the west of my office. When I sit on my desk and turn to my left, I can see the figure of Earl Grey sitting atop his pillar. I can picture the honey-coloured sandstone of the city's central heritage area. But when I descend to the ground floor of my building, I'm often drawn in the opposite direction, away from the monumental, towards the footbridges, brutalist car parks and motorway of the east city centre. This area was for the most part the product of the second half of the 20th century, planners' dream of the dominance of the motorcar. The motorway cuts a chasm through the streetscape and the footbridges are like distorted echoes of old walking routes. Streets that once linked with others are now dead ends, some of which you can escape by climbing a set of stairs to suspended concrete walkways that link you to buildings, multi-storey car parks and numerous underpasses until eventually you emerge into a traditional streetscape and put your feet once again on solid ground, your mind slightly warped by the circuitous, wayward trip you've taken. Next to a skeletal, curved concrete car park, the motorway climbs from its chasm. It sits above a 16th century hospital that's uneasily tucked into a void between A-roads. Suspended on Victorian stone arches a few feet away, high-speed trains rattle along the east coastline. I experience here a dizzying sense of worlds colliding. It's intoxicating. I first explored a network of walkways and underpasses near my office with a geographer from Newcastle University, Steve Graham, who had written a book about the vertical, multi-layered aspects of cities, from skyscrapers to underground spaces. In its own way, Newcastle embodies this multi-layered quality. There are numerous levels to the city, a characteristic embraced and amplified by the vertiginous dreams of 20th century planners. The city centre sits on a plateau above the River Tyne, and the streets slope steeply downhill to reach the quays. The parallel city I like to explore reaches the same destination by means of the often bewildering interlinked system I've described. 
Some of the walkways have been closed by a council tired of the cost and hassle of maintaining them, but it's still possible to walk along a lot of them and to thoroughly confound your sense of direction in the process. I often go there when I'm looking for a quick hit of something different from the usual routine. Elsewhere is beauty, but here, for me at least, is possibility. As a place, it's certainly different. The pathways go in multiple directions, not just horizontally, but vertically, to avoid intersecting with road traffic. It's hard to know whether you could call it a place at all. Place as a concept seems rooted, anchored. It implies contemplation. On a walkway above a motorway, you feel very little need to stop and reflect. It's designed to keep you moving, to discourage lingering. Constant motion is what matters. The subjective experience of the location, the physical and psychological effects of the ascents and descents of the journey. It temporarily deranges your senses and you don't really want to do it too often. It's a little like a roller coaster or being extremely drunk. So this is a place, if it is a place, quite different to those I might usually recall, the memory places of nostalgic reverie, but closer to the kinds of places I write about. It's like a work in progress. It's rough-hewn. It challenges me and makes me think differently. It's far from comforting. Yet, paradoxically, I've found that going there, leaving my building and walking down the street, climbing the walkways and spending time in motion thinking about the city, has helped me to come to terms with being in a new situation. My life as an immigrant, I've found in a neglected and strange part of the city's urban form, a way in, a gap in the facade of the host culture that I can explore, exploit. Its peculiarly placeless, suspended, weightless quality has made me feel in some way at home, in other words. I see myself reflected in it. I identify with its fragmentary state. I recognise it as a kindred spirit. Its flux is my flux. England can present a stony face to the outsider, an impenetrable fortress you appear to have no hope of accessing. Here that identity has been smashed apart and reassembled. Physical traces of the past, an old building, the ruins of a holy well, can be very important to me when I'm writing about a place, providing an anchor for my thoughts, a focus for my research and for the reader's attention. But sometimes that isn't possible and I have to engage in the imaginative reconstruction of a place with no physical evidence of its existence. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. After all, it's the solidity, the permanence of place that's an illusion. My time on the walkways was a reminder that place isn't fixed, it's dynamic. You move through it, putting it together as you go. It's a puzzle to be assembled. It's enigmatic, you decode it. It's multi-layered, both physically in its verticality and historically in the juxtaposition of buildings from different eras. It's probable that I'll never again need to seek analogies to my personal tumult in the decaying jumble of staircases and walkways of a strange city, but what matters most is that I found them, and in doing so, discovered my way in. That was Carl Whitney. You can find out more about Carl on his website at www.carlwhitney.ie. That's Carl with a K. Next, here's Zoe Howe on Canvey. I can see it from my window, stark and industrial, at once futuristic and entrenched in the past, 
ugly beautiful on the horizon, just a couple of miles of twinkling water between us. The tide is in. In a few hours, I'd be able to walk straight across this very expanse. Well, I could if I had the right footwear, and I wanted to. I'd end up at the Yacht Club on Canby Point by tea time. That's the posh end. They found a human skull on the beach there the other day. Of course they did. When the tide goes out, the gleaming Essex Riviera will turn to mud, flat and mossy, pewter and neon green in the half-light. It's stickier than you'd imagine, filled with life and death, minerals and ashes illegally scattered, the bones of old boats and, the closer you get to Canby, chemicals, a toxic rainbow glaze of petroleum and a strange smell. Canvey summons strong reactions, from fascination to disdain, loyalty to aversion. This outpost of the Cockney diaspora was dragged from the sea by Dutch engineers in the 1600s. A few of their original dwellings stand quaintly amid decrepit holiday homes, significantly younger but falling apart quicker. Rotten floors lined with magazines that predate the Beatles. These single-storey shacks are a dying breed, and, as a result, a source of usually vicarious nostalgia and romance. Once ubiquitous here, now a typical Canvey home is a bright new build. Live, laugh, love, replacing the ducks on the wall. Delusions of grandeur dictating the height of the gates at the front. You'd need a third floor to peer over the sea wall. Canvey is, famously, below sea level. Former resident Wilco Johnson insists this does something to the psyche and blames the place for his submarine consciousness. The devastating flood of 1953 prompted the seawall to be raised for the island's safety, and so now almost no one has a sea view. This flat stretch of land has long been used as a scapegoat, whether there's a bad smell floating over Benfleet Creek or a spate of vandalism. People on the mainland used to snigger that you could always spot someone from Canvey because their skin had a greenish hue. That joke isn't funny anymore. The health of the islanders being statistically 10% poorer than the rest of the nation. Still, Canvey is a punchline, the butt of a joke, according to many Essex residents, just like Essex has always been the butt of a joke for the rest of the UK. And Canvey is funny, but if you're laughing at, rather than with, you're going to miss something precious. It's funny because of its ribald cockney sense of humour, mingled with a little isolated island weirdness. It's funny because funny things always seem to happen there. Unearthly apparitions get washed up on the shingle. Mutant creatures, the kind they make B-movies about, such as the so-called Canvey Island monster. Messages in bottles. Human remains. It's funny peculiar. And just when you're laughing into your fifth pint of beer, something happens that isn't funny at all. Keep calm and keep your guard up. You a tourist. You are on Canvey now. And yes, it's on, not in unless you're exceptionally unlucky. They say East End mobsters favoured these wild and lawless parts as much for burying bodies as buying a little caravan for dear old mum. A little less lawless these days, but don't push your luck. Here, vintage Stepney accents mingle with the Foghorns' fights and funfairs, while the passing container ships, growling and monstrous, shake the ground beneath your feet on the promenade. Outsiders are magnetised to it, ambitious teenagers strive to escape it, and rock and roll pilgrims trudge the sea wall and remember Dr Feelgood, 
the island's most famous sons. The Blues Brothers meets Minder with a bit of Ealing comedy thrown in. There's a tough guy with a twinkle in his eye, a hard nut from the caravan park, an old glamour who fancies a chat, the smiling man who struggles with literacy but spends each day in the library anyway because they're kind to him, comes to every author event because they read aloud and because there's always cake and tea. There's a soak stumbling out of the Monaco bar to vomit a few feet from where you stand. He spots you between hurls, bids you a good evening and then continues steadying himself on the wall with his hand. They're friendly on Canby. There's a layer of something missing. Self-consciousness, social anxiety. I can't put my finger on that missing element. I just hope they never find it. Dotted with gas storage containers and surrounded by refineries once ablaze with activity. What they used to refer to mock proudly as Oil City sits defiant in the middle of the Thames estuary. Between the Prince's shipping channel and mainland South Essex, Benfleet Creek, the ruins of Hadley Castle and Two Tree Island, a reclaimed Victorian rubbish dump and now a haven for wildlife, twitches, solitary men who like to fly sophisticated toy aeroplanes and illicit activities in cars. The now decommissioned Corriton oil refinery close by is ghostly now, but the winking red lights and flaming tower of the past always meant that I was close to home when I spotted them from the train window after a day up west. Close up, the sound of the flame was overwhelming. Even though it flames no more, the tower, immortalised in the Dr Feelgood song All Through the City, still burns in the collective local memory. They're more often than not seems to be something blazing on Canby, or at least it always feels as if something could blow up at any time, metaphorically or otherwise. The gas, the oil, the alcohol, the personalities. It's no wonder Canby people have something of a carpe diem attitude to life. They know how to party. They do what they like. Here time is fluid. Shops open and close when they please. Expect to see things you thought they hadn't made for 20 years for sale as a matter of course. 1964 prices in the shoe shop. Old-fashioned short shrift for the loitering teenagers in the bakery. Little boys acting like little old men. You want to time travel? It's easier than you think and the portal is south of Benfleet. The kind of warmth and wit that went out with flared trousers thrives here. Darker qualities thrive too. There are good eggs and bad apples everywhere, but a bad apple on Canvey can be badder than most. Economic deprivation, substance abuse and historically poor overall education make for difficult bedfellows. And all too often, squashing creativity and unusually gifted individuals with inverted snobbery, Canvey is its own worst enemy, driving its prodigies away or driving them mad. There are more than a few reclusive geniuses hiding in dark chalets across the town. Despite a widely held presumption that white working-class Canby must be a racist stronghold, a relatively new community of Jewish families has been largely embraced with a note of enthusiastic curiosity. Orthodox Jews tend to prefer to live quietly, privately, and keep themselves to themselves, but this is Canby Island, so you can forget about that. They're going to invite you around for beer and a barbecue. They're going to want to know your names. They're going to want to break hullabread bread with you and visit your delicatessen, even if this would never happen in Stamford Hill. Basically, they're going to welcome you, sincerely and fiercely, whether you want it or not. 
Many times I've found myself writing about Canvey Island, largely in connection to the aforementioned proto-punk R&B reprobates Dr Feelgood. I co-authored guitarist Wilco Johnson's first book, Looking Back at Me, and wrote the biography of his erstwhile bandmate and sometime nemesis, Lee Brillo, the charismatic frontman of the Feelgoods. Brillo passed away in 1994, but his name remains forever linked with Canvey, a place he fell in love with as a boy, visiting his grandmother on the island. Everyone in the city seemed to have a granny on Canvey. Lee was the one feel-good who was not born and bred on the island, and to spend time in a place with so much space, water and wildlife was irresistible to this little post-war Londoner. Eventually, the whole family left West London and moved to Canvey instead. It's impossible to write about the feel-goods without focusing on Canvey's atmosphere, its quirks, and the sense that things are done differently here, with little care to what anyone thinks on the mainland. There's a pride, and a power in that pride. When Dr Feelgood's star was rising, any other group would have left Essex for London, where the buzz was. They played in London, absolutely, but they stayed right there on Canvey. If anyone wanted to interview them for the music papers, they could travel the 30 miles east. And they did. By accident or design, a bit of both I'd say, the place, tough, strange, booze-sodden, blood-stained and apparently on fire became part of the band's legend. It isn't the 70s anymore. Dr Feelgood, in its original form, is a memory, albeit one that is often invoked and kept ferociously alive by those who knew and loved them. But Canvey, in a large part thanks to them, is a place that continues to hold space in the collective imagination far beyond the marshy Essex borders. That was Zoe Howe. You can find out more about Zoe on her website at www.zoehow.com. And that concludes episode 357, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 358, Bethan Roberts explores the processes by which truth transmutes into fiction, and Lawrence Sale considers the balance between recognition and discovery in creative work. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.